Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're sitting down with a woman who's been at the center of many of the state's most intense housing and transit debates in recent years as a top aide to state senator Scott Wiener. We'll be joined in just a moment by Annie Fryman, a trained architect. She helped Wiener craft some of the state's most impactful housing laws of recent years. And now she's at an influential public policy think tank, Spur. But first, Guy... We're not going off a fiscal oh, cliff. Barely. It does appear that this debt ceiling thing. Are we gonna? I, I, like the Senate is literally uh, yeah, voting as we're taping as we this tape, Thursday so afternoon. Maybe not to totally jinx it, but it does appear that Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden have done the somewhat impossible. I mean, this it felt as soon as a week ago that like. We were careening, yeah. I mean, it was obviously uh, a deal that no one uh, is fully thrilled with, but also a really interesting breakdown in how our delegation in California Mm -hmm. ended up voting. I think a really good proxy for however we want to label it, progressive, moderate, establishment, anti-establishment, and how these votes broke down among California Democrats. Honestly, a better for those keeping score at home, a better accounting than, you know, who's eating lunch with what caucus. Like this is this was a really tough vote for a lot of right, uh, these you can members. Be a member of a caucus. And that can mean kind of very little. Right. right. Um, but yeah, I mean, first of all, maybe let's start with Republicans because we rarely do in California. But all 12 voted yes, including pretty hardline conservatives like Tom McClintock up east of Sacramento. Um, these are people that you might have expected to be joining the Freedom Caucus in, you know, opposing this, but it seems like there's maybe a little hometown love there. Yeah, I think this is the McCarthy factor. It has to be, right? Like, you look at someone like McClintock, he voted against the 2011 debt ceiling deal as being, you know, not enough spending cuts. This leaves whole, uh, you know, the vast majority of the the federal budget untouched, yet he's on board for this. And yeah, you have to think this is a result of Kevin McCarthy being speaker, the relationships he has with that caucus, the money that he's poured into those members uh, over the years. And the fact that at the end of the day, he was really scrounging to come up with GOP votes. It was ultimately Democratic votes that put this over the top. But we also saw a split among Democrats in California, 29 voted yes, but 11 voted against this deal. Yeah. And I think if you look at who voted against it, it is the more, quote unquote, progressive members of the uh, Democratic caucus here from California. It includes uh, two of the three House members running for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. Barbara Lee from Oakland, Katie Porter from Orange County both voted no. Adam Schiff from L.A. voted yes. Um, And yeah, I mean, you mentioned establishment versus moderate, whatever. I mean, to me, this is in some ways 
the more important question, because let's be clear, in the grand scheme of things, they're all pretty progressive Democrats. But, you know, Adam Schiff has already gotten the support of Nancy Pelosi, the former speaker, the speaker emeritus, um, as it were. And I think he has always been really part of leadership in the establishment there. Um, I think the question is, like, could this potentially hurt him in this race? I mean, it's, yeah. There's not a lot in there for Democrats in California to like. Yeah. And you can see the kind of attacks that both sides would play off of that. If you're Porter or Lee, you're you're talking about a vote shift took that basically completely normalizes this kind of hostage taking negotiations around the debt ceiling. It puts the the entire burden of these cuts on low income Americans. Rich Americans don't have to give up anything in this deal. In fact, they're going to have fewer IRS agents chasing after them to, to pay their taxes. But we f- all have to start paying our student loans again. Okay? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> On the flip side of that, if your your shift, you paint it as something that if the alternative was completely falling off the right. fiscal cliff, a deal that looks like if you get into the weeds on something like food assistance was tailored in a way where, you know, there there is ultimately going to be some benefits for progressives. I think, you know, it was a tough vote. I would expect to hear that come up in the context of the Senate race. And honestly, even congressional races that could be coming up, ones like the one in Oakland to replace Barbara Lee, potential congressional race in San Francisco in the future. I think this is exactly the type of wedge, the kind of question that will come up in races that involve Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a little easier for the Porters and Lees to make the case that, you know, they voted against a bill that would hurt poor people than it might be later on when everyone's forgotten about, you know, the the uncertainty, the fiscal uncertainty. It's really hard to campaign on something that didn't happen. And we've seen this again and again, which is also why Republicans have not historically been punished, I think, for this type of hostage taking. Right. Because voters, it's it's complicated. It's hard to get to. Um, Speaking of complicated, I think we got to show a little love to the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, he really defied everybody's expectations. You've seen some comments coming out of the White House. It seems like they're was the mutual respect garnered on each side, which also indicates that Kevin McCarthy probably doesn't think that Joe Biden is like senile or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, But, you know, I do think that this was the deal that not the contours of the bill, but just the makeup of who voted for it in the House. This is what made the most sense from the beginning, right? That you would sort of have the wings of the party drop off and more centrist Republicans and Democrats come to the table. And that's what we got. It's almost like, I don't know, it's like 10 years ago or something. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear. 20 years ago. The starting point was low expectations for Kevin McCarthy (laughs) heading into this. But that being said, there was a lot of discussion in January and February about focus on all the moderate members in California's Republican caucus, folks like David Valadeo, Young Kim, Michelle Steele, these are going to be the type of representatives that could break from McCarthy that would sign a discharge position to, you know, bring this right to the floor on a clean, uh, you know, raise of the debt limit. That didn't happen. He was able to keep those kind of members uh, in line and ultimately supportive of, of the deal that he struck with the Biden administration. And at least so far, we're taping this Thursday afternoon, it doesn't seem like they're coming for his crown. I mean, I think that despite the rules that he agreed to that would a- allow one member to call for a snap vote, you still have to have the votes to oust a speaker. So, I, you know, I think as of now, it looks like... Uh I guess we're economy lives until after the 24 election. All right. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by housing and transportation expert Annie Fryman. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with Guy Marzarati. We are thrilled to welcome Annie Fryman to the show. She's a former longtime staffer to State Senator Scott Weiner and helped him craft some of the most controversial housing reforms of recent years. She's now director of special projects at San Francisco Planning and Urban Research, a think tank commonly known as SPUR. She focuses on local housing and transportation policy. Annie, welcome to the breakdown. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we want to get to all of your deep policy uh, thoughts and and. and and everything, but we want to start at the beginning, which is, I guess, according to your Twitter bio, you had a twingy childhood in the soft Kentucky hills. <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah, tell us a little bit about growing up there. Yeah, I uh, so I was born in central Kentucky. Uh, it's where my dad's family's been for a very, very long time. A uh, great city called Lexington. I think it's one of America's best kept secrets still. Um, but I guess I shouldn't be saying that on radio. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I lived there my whole life until I was 18. And then I moved out to California for college. And I've been here since. And so... I think you came out here to study architecture. Is that right? What drew your interest? I did. Great question. Um, I, I guess I, I I chose to study architecture while I was in school, but I think that there's something really that drew me to this idea of being someone who could like study and learn and then contribute to the built environment that we all live in. And I think it's something that we take for granted until we start paying attention to it, the power of the built environment of which at least as a student – you think that architecture is sort of one of the paths that you can go down to pursue that and kind of contribute, you know, your ideas and your expertise and yeah, your resources to that. I mean, I got to ask, coming from Kentucky to Stanford um, and then you end up working for Scott Wiener, as we noted, I mean... Did you know you were a flaming liberal when you came out here? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you ask. Um, my parents were very, very liberal, and that was something that was somewhat unique about our family. Um, my mom, you know, was always volunteering on Democratic campaigns, and she was bringing us to phone banking when we were quite young. So you were regardless of our disinterest. I wouldn't say that I was interested in it, but my parents tried to do their part. Um, and obviously, we've you know seen Kentucky in a lot of slates 
backslide into um, a much more conservative place um, in and out over the last 20 years or so. But I, I did know that. And I think that in that way, I felt a little bit more at home in California. I had some culture shock in other ways. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, politically, it felt like a lot of things that my parents stood for back home finally made sense because you actually see in a community what that means when that's more of the default rather than the exception. So then where'd the leap or the transition happen from architecture to public policy? Like, did you get frustrated? It sounds like... It's, It's funny in hindsight because I feel like there was a few years where, maybe this is on brand, a lot of the job decisions I made were just like, oh, God, I, I can't pay my rent. And then you like frantically make a decision because you're 23. Um, but yeah, I started out, I studied architecture in school. I was working at a small firm in San Francisco. And at that point, early in your career, you're basically a drafts person. You're drawing right angles for a living, making $15 an hour. Um, and that's your job for quite a while. And I realized that in San Francisco, you think that you are working at an architecture firm, but really you be, you quickly become a permit negotiator and a community organizer because that is actually the bottomless pit of work that architecture firms face. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that for small projects especially, it's architects that are project managing all of the development. There's not a developer in most cases. And so that's actually where that air traffic control lives. And a lot of that work falls on those younger designers, even though their job is drawing right angles for a living. Quickly, you get into community organizing the neighborhood against appeal your duplex project or camping out at the planning department or building department. (laughs) Um, And and sometimes it's not even the commission. It's just sitting there and that whatever floor it was, uh, Donoff Van Ness, trying to get your building permit, your planning permit. And I think one thing that I realized that really sort of sparked this uh, change that I made career-wise is that you realize that a place like San Francisco says out of one side of its mouth, we want transit, we want density, we want affordability, we're a city for renters. And then they actually have embedded in the laws and policies of the city a million reasons why you're not allowed to do that. And so you could propose a project that does exactly what they say and follows all of the rules they say, and then informally they have a million ways to say no to it. And so I kind of went from doing that as a designer, getting extremely frustrated, going into community organizing, sort of almost moonlighting nights and weekends, skipping lunch at, or skipping work at lunch and going to public comment with a bunch of my activist friends, um, and started to see that it actually wasn't architects that were sort of having the most say in what our built environment was like, but it was actually activists, it was policymakers, it was lawyers, it was a lot of other folks that you kind of had to learn the hard way. Before we get into the deep things, I mean, as you're speaking, like we talked about sort of the progressive values your parents instilled, but coming here, I mean, the housing debates don't break down along those lines in the same way, right? I mean, I think a lot of the stuff you're talking about were enacted as progressive policies maybe 20, 30 years ago to avoid, you know, changing, you know, significantly changing neighborhoods, or maybe it was to protect the environment. I mean, I think that a lot of things that started off with good reason uh, have ended up in the policies you're discussing. Was there a moment, was it meeting Scott Wiener, where you were like, oh, there is a place for me here, but it's not necessarily with either side of the kind of binary of the city politics? Yeah, it's a good question. It actually really predates having anything to do with politics whatsoever in the city. So, you know, I mentioned before my parents like volunteered on campaigns 
friends and whatnot, but we weren't a political family in any way. Um, when I came out here, I went from being in architecture to meeting a lot of just sort of like wacky activists in the city. And we were just basically doing performance art on the steps of City Hall, right? Like I could not tell you who the mayor was. <laughs> I could not tell you who any of the supervisors were. And so I didn't really come at it from the political lens. It was more of just the like angry young person with a little bit of free time lens. Um, I ended up getting connected in a weird way to Scott Wiener because he had this temporary opening in his supervisor office when he had a staffer going on parental leave. And he was sort of in this weird place the year before his state Senate race, where he had this staffer that was temporarily leaving. They got approval to backfill that position just for the months that that person was gone. He wanted someone who he could trust to kind of know their way around the planning and building department because he did so much work locally on housing and someone, frankly, who was in a weird enough position that they could take a job for four or five months <laughs> and then leave. And so although I had zero experience in government or in city hall or in politics in any way, in some ways, I kind of checked that box, I guess. And he sort of knew of a lot of my friends that I was doing activism with, which is sort of folks that turned into the Yimby movement, though we weren't calling ourselves that at the time. Um and so, yeah, I, I got a call and I was already thinking about quitting my job at my architecture firm to just join a bigger firm where licensing for apprenticeship would be a little bit of a smoother process. And so it was kind of like this total coincidence. My plan when I accepted that job at City Hall was actually to do it for four months, save a little bit of money, spend a month working on my portfolio and then go back to architecture. So it, it kind of all sort of like turned into a rocket ship as it was happening. <laughs> um, but I can't say that I had a ton of foresight or some master plan going into it. What was the learning process like for the politics side of it? Because he wins that race in 2016. You go to work for him in the state legislature. Your office starts putting out these really weighty, controversial housing policies right away. Like, where's the learning curve when it comes to kind of building a coalition, the, po the political side of this? Yeah, I'd say there's, there's two parts of it. I mean, it, one, I think... Um, Scott has an incredible, incredible world of people and talent just surrounding him who do an extraordinary job of mentoring someone in my position who is brand new. I really, really learned so much, not just from Scott directly, who is his own 10 staffers worth of work at any point in time, but also just the other staffers that he had brought up, other people in his orbit who were really, really willing and eager to help me be successful. Um, so again, I can't take all the credit. I sort of spread it around. Um, and then I think on the policy side, obviously there's, I think, a little bit of freshness that comes from being someone who comes from the outside because you get to see a little bit clearer and with that beginner's eye of not knowing what the entrenched mm -hmm. coalitions are. Um, and so you can think a little bit more critically about them. I think the last thing that I'll say on policy is that there was something both really cool and also really disappointing to me about my first year in Sacramento, realizing that all of the people writing housing policy none of them have any experience doing anything related to the real world of getting housing built, right? And so in a weird way, like there were so many rooms that I was in where I was the most experienced person in the room because I had worked in architecture for like a year and a half. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, well, I've navigated a but planning code before. But you also camped out at the planning department. So yeah, that but it's like you've navigated a planning code before, you've gotten permits before, yeah. you've had to deal with all of those yucky appeals before. And so, you know, SB 35, which was the bill that Scott introduced his first um, day in office in December 20. 2016, that bill was frankly 
how do you tighten up and close up the process so that all of these rules don't become fake rules and all of these things that we say are conditions of a permit actually get enforced as conditions of a permit. And that was something cool that I think, in a way, although I was so young and inexperienced in government and politics, there was a lot of value in being able to map out exactly what that flowchart is and exactly where it breaks. And then assign a policy solution to that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking to SPUR's Director of Special Projects, Annie Fryman. She's a former staffer to State Senator Scott Weiner. So we want to talk a little bit more. You mentioned SB 35, the housing debates. But before um, that, you are involved right now in a push to get the legislature to aid transit agencies. Talk about the link, though, between the housing laws, because we should say that, you know, a lot of these agencies are facing essentially a fiscal cliff of their own lower ridership during the pandemic, pandemic aid drying up, um, a lot of challenges in the downtown corridors. But there's a direct link between a lot of the housing laws you pushed and the need for this transit, right? There is. Um, and it's, it's how sad is that we have to clarify which fiscal cliff we're talking about in one show. Um, but yes, so I think that one thing that, you know, we'll talk about, I guess, the details of the exact emergency mode we're in about the fiscal cliff for public transit in California in a moment. But so much of the work that we started laying the groundwork for starting in 2017, when Senator Weiner got to the legislature, there were a number of allies on housing. And I think we really saw this groundswell of this movement of not just Yimbies, but this kind of whole combination of coalitions and folks and energy to push aggressive housing policy at the state level. And we are in the middle of a more successful than anticipated multi-year, maybe decade-long project in really fixing a lot of the state housing laws so that they work. That plan takes as a given and is dependent on a lot of public transportation service. Most of the provisions that sort of turn on eligibility or qualification or leveling up of how all of these state housing laws are applied has to do with your proximity to high frequency transit. So many different CEQA exemptions and parking waivers and streamlining codes have to do with your proximity to high-frequency public transportation. And so we're not just talking when we discuss the transit fiscal cliff with all of the bus and train riders and people who are dependent on transit who will be isolated and stranded and cut off because they don't have that mobility. But we're also talking about upending half a decade's worth of historic progress on housing that we've been doing successfully to build the world we want to live in. And the world we want to live in is one where there's a lot of housing and there's transit that people can use to get between their home and where they're trying to go. And so in terms of those service cuts, Marisa mentioned transit agencies here in the Bay are among a coalition asking for $5 billion from the legislature to you know help with ongoing funding. The response from the Newsom administration was, look, there's a two billion pot of money for, you know, long term infrastructure costs, future projects like BART in San Jose. We are going to cut it. Now we are going to loosen it so you can use it uh, for ongoing operations. What do you make of that proposal and like how it, you know, lends itself to the long term functions of these agencies? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's good to acknowledge just overall that the state is facing, I think it's like a $31 billion budget deficit, something in that range. So I, I don't want to understate that. I will say, though, that I think it's extremely short sighted um, mm -hmm. because there is so much federal matching money on the table that by actually flexing those funds, we are functionally as a state saying we're going to give $2 billion to transit operations from a pot that then makes disqualifies us from $10 billion of federal funds. 
And that is something that I just think, especially in a budget deficit, is not a strong policy decision to make. And in addition, by repurposing funds that are used for transit capital, which is basically like the metal, the physical one-time construction project and the thing you do a ribbon cutting for, that's what capital entails. By repurposing transit capital funds for operations, even though you then get that operations funding, you are pulling that out of all these projects that need operations in order to stay qualifying for federal mm-hmm. funding. And so that's one of those those things that's also, I think, especially frustrating for this coalition that's putting a lot of pressure on Governor Newsom and the Senate and Assembly leadership and has been running a campaign for the budget tiers as well, is that there are other pots of money that are available to get this transit operations funding that does not raise that same problem, right? There are unprogrammed federal highway funds. There is money from cap and trade that has not yet been programmed. There are a handful of other pots. And so it's it's very short-sighted to take it from this one that actually has extraordinary consequences and leaves a lot of other problems out there. Uh, quickly, before we move on to housing, it feels like we're in a bit of a catch-22 and that this is a situation that's existed for years, right? On the one hand, ridership goes down, transit agencies lose money, the government is hard-pressed, federal or state, to fund, you know, paying for ridership that doesn't exist. On the other hand, if we don't plan long-term and build better systems, nobody's going to ride them because they don't work for everybody. Um, So what's the argument you're making? I mean, Phil Ting from San Francisco, very progressive, has historically supported a lot of this, is saying, I don't want to hand over a blank check without major improvements and greater accountability, but it doesn't feel like these agencies are in a position to do any of that. Well, so I I push back a little bit on that because I think that, one, the state has historically funded less than 5% of these agencies' transit operations. They get that money from county sales taxes. They get that money from their own fares because we have very durable ridership in the Bay Area, much more than Southern California, which is why that breakdown is different. Um, and so one, the state doesn't really have a strong precedent for for leaning on accountability measures and saying you're you're hitting above or below that line. Second of all, operators who have been working on this in coalition with agencies and other advocates for many, many months have proposed a massive suite and portfolio of accountability reforms and also said, hey, if you've got accountability reforms you want on the table, like don't let a good crisis go to waste. Let's do it. Like the, everything is on the table right now. And so this this kind of vague hand waving at but we need accountability, but then not naming what it is. There's an, a huge appetite to connect conditions of this funding with accountability reforms. Mm. And I think that that's what's getting missed in translation. It's not free money. It's not a bailout. It's not give us money so that we can keep running with the same problems we had before. Everyone is eager for this to be the opportunity that we put conditions on funding to increase accountability, to make it so that these agencies are more integrated, to make it such that fares are easier, and to make the writer experience better for exactly the reasons that you described, Marisa. But, um, but I would say a lot of this is predicated on maintaining ridership in the hopes you know, that ridership mm-hmm. will ultimately recover in a lot of places where it's dipped since COVID. At what point, though, should the state stop paying for ridership that no longer exists? Like, what's the 10-year plan, assuming that the ridership does not bounce back? Yeah, I mean, it's so I'll answer in a couple ways. One is that California contributes less to transit operations for their local and regional agencies than almost any other state, right? We've done the research on all of the other big transit agencies around the country, and their state has a much bigger contribution to transit operations than California does. And so I think that that's worth pointing out because the baseline is not necessarily the state contributes zero. I also think that it's important to frame in that 
we don't look at highways and airports and other modes of transportation as you are successful if you require no subsidy. That's this weird standard that we put on public transportation. We don't look at public libraries and say you're successful when you require no subsidy. We don't look at parks and say you're In successful fact, when, the you, opposite direction. when you require yeah. no subsidy. Yeah. And so I think that there's there's something to be to, to pull back and say, if the state has has taken this on as a piece of critical infrastructure, then we need to take a really hard look at what makes that a successful piece of infrastructure and what interventions need to occur such that it's successful at what it's intended for. And it is this weird exception that we make for public transportation, particularly in urban areas, because rural public transportation is backfilled by the feds on operations. So in urban areas, we have this unique standard that compared to most any other kind of public service and infrastructure, it is only successful if it requires no public subsidy, not measured by if it's getting us in alignment with our climate goals, if it's getting people out of their cars, if it's getting people where they need to go, if it's working well in those other ways. All right. We just have a few minutes left. And I'm curious, like you mentioned SB 35 earlier. That was a bill that um, is actually being renewed right now. The state assembly or the state Senate passed. It's going to sunset. And it essentially said in multifamily, multi-unit developments, we're going to make the process way easier. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the approval process. Perfect world here. Like what does California need to reach its housing goals? Is it state subsidies? Is it more of this type of streamlining? Um, what is there a sort of silver bullet, do you think? There's never a silver bullet. Of course not. Oh, but, but if you could be emperor, like what would it be? What would be the thing that you would like to see most taken on, regardless of whether it's sort of politically palatable at this moment? Yeah, so um, I have one answer, but I will say I think that when we talk about California's housing crisis, we're actually talking about one of like nine things. So, for mm -hmm. example, subsidy solves some of those nine things, but not others. Zoning solves some of those nine things but not others, et cetera. I will say that I think that we've made so much progress on the zoning and permitting predictability that that fight is not over, but we've really done so much in the last four or five years that that increment has closed. Um, I think that one of the things that we will see a lot, two things that I see we'll see a lot of focus on soon. One is an increased awareness and focus on policy levers to reduce construction cost. Um, that is something that impacts fees, it impacts inclusionary housing, it impacts um, timelines in some ways, it impacts ways that you can adjust for like land costs and whatnot. I also think that we need to have a path for the state to play a bigger role in actual like permit approvals when a city is not doing a great job. Okay. We'll have to leave it there. Annie Fryman of Spur, former uh, Stafford Senator Scott Wiener. Thanks for coming in. Thanks Thank for you. Us. That's going to do it for this edition of po Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. For more politics coverage, sign up for our Political Breakdown newsletter. It's at kqed.org slash newsletters. And if you are already a subscriber, take our reader survey. You'll find it at the top of Thursday's newsletter when Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez broke down San Francisco's city budget. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Mars. Zarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. 
knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.